Cinematic Fantastic. Atu, Barada, Nikto. I'll show you who I am and what I am. Buy a werewolf and leaves, becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes. As we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. If you wanted something to do in between seasons, when you're missing us dearly and life feels uneven, we'll stop on by and give you a lift. Brought you a present. He brought you a gift. This, this is, is a bonus, bonus episode. episode. A little, little bit different from, from the ones you know. know. Four theme movies in a row. Welcome, Welcome to, to the bonus. bonus. Thankful that you joined us. Now, now here's, here's the, the bonus. So Welcome back. I love saying that. It feels so good to say that. The last time you heard from us, dear, lovely, cinematic, uh, fantastic, fanatic listeners, the last time we talked, uh, we were discussing Invisible Man in at the season finale of season one. That was not that long ago to us. I don't know how long that's going to be ago for you guys that are listening out there in lovely podcast land. But as we mentioned to you before, uh, we are in a theme month, I guess like we could call it that, uh, of four, count them, four uh, amazing entries. Um, I want to talk real quick. Do you mind if I talk real quick about, about the origin of these bonus episodes? Because I think you know what it was. Okay, it was back, I think back early on, I was talking about, you know, I was, oh, you know, I really want William to see these samurai movies, right? And I said, well, okay, samurai movies, they're not science fiction, fantasy, horror kind of adventure. It's it's stretch. So I was thinking, okay, well, maybe in between seasons, we could do bonus episodes that might not necessarily fit into science fiction, fantasy, horror, whatever. And so um, the th- we came up with some themes. And so if this works out and you guys really enjoy this, uh, well, we still want to do it regardless. But these bonus episodes, they aren't part of our season as the theme of science fiction, fantasy, horror. They're their own thing. And they kind of do revolve around a theme, so we can kind of keep them going. This theme right now that we're doing right now is is us. cinematic <laughs> classics. He comes in from comes in from the side of the frame. I exist. I exist. Hello, it is me, William, and you obviously heard Jason. Um, it has been many weeks, but yes, I exist. My name is William. Yes, and, you do. Um, I have with come a, here. You jumped off the top rope with. I was like, <laughs> and the theme is called "And Off the Top Rope." He comes up with the elbow. Yeah, I'm slapping you. I'm slapping you with the chair. All right. So, <laughs> as Dad was about to say, this is called Cinematic Classics, as you can see from the title. Um, it should be, uh, Cinematic Classics Month, M1931. Obviously, we're just gonna piece together that first part, uh, for now. Um, so Cinematic Classics. Why is it called Cinematic Classics, that is? Um, so we put together four movies for this grouping, uh, which is M, uh, Citizen Kane, uh, Night of the Hunter, and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And, um, 
two in particular of those movies, namely Citizen Kane and M, are known to be widely considered the ones of the greatest movies of all time. Citizen Kane being widely considered the the greatest of all time. However, in case we want to lump things into the category that, you know, they're great, but someone might not think of them as one of the greatest movies of all time, like something like The Night of the Hunter, people would be like, why Why is that on the list? I think they're really good. I think they're really good movies. They just may not be as well known. I think. Yeah, basically... What if the movie isn't Toads the Goats? What unites them <laughs> is that they are classic. We're going to leave room for other movies we might lump into this category uh, that maybe they're, they aren't Toads the Goats. And, you know, um, there's no problem with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking, okay, these are all movies that I wanted to watch with you because I enjoyed them. I had not seen Night of the Hunter. I have seen Treasure this year, Madre, and I have seen M. Uh, and, and I did see Citizen Kane many, many years ago uh, for a... Uh, film history and criticism class. And all four of these I've never seen before. Obviously, having heard of Citizen Kane and M, uh, the other two haven't heard of them, uh, but we're going to be enjoying them in this four-part uh, miniseries. Bonus episodes. Absolutely, absolutely. And these bonus episodes, when you download them, they'll probably should just show up, they'll just say bonus or something. They'll show up in a bonus episode section of where your podcast kind of groups themselves. At least I think so on most platforms. But whenever we do season two, those will actually be labeled as season two. And I am really looking forward to that as well. But this is a nice this is a nice little like island, you know, kind of like when you're on a trip from one place to another and you want to stop off uh, at a place where they have the world's largest rubber band or something like that. You're like, I gotta see that. That's yeah, but that's not really on our way. We gotta stay on the road. But it's the world's biggest rubber band ball. We gotta see that. So when you take those those side quests, it's a side quest. It's a Dungeons and Dragons side quest. It's not the main quest. In this case, we are killing four monsters. Although they're they're really great, beautiful monsters. I wanna I wanna hug them they're so monstrously bad. Monstrously awesome. And we're taking their pelts back to the old man who lives in the inn, and we're getting some special rubies. That's technically called <laughs> poaching, which is illegal in a ton of countries. It should a lot be. of side quests are poaching, so you should feel bad about doing side quests in an RPG. So honestly, goblins shouldn't be treated as they 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 could easily be much more than monsters so it's like kill four goblins wow. it's like why don't you get to know them on a personal level you know maybe they have a family maybe they, could they be a you whole know race of people with their own culture maybe and, they hate mondays yeah mythology i mean goblins have their own you know their own thing but you maybe they do a specific ritual at a specific time and you won't ever know <laughs> until you allow them to invite yeah, you maybe they're they're just uh, a little bit aggressive because they've had aggression put on them so much and if they met somebody who actually traded with them and treated them like another human being you'd be surprised just like the character we're talking about in this film. That's a, kind of a stretch with well, this one. Well, it's basically the same idea, sort of. So We'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm curious to see your take on this. Okay, all so right. what is this movie called? The movie is called M, 1931, which is a really short title since it's one character. Um, it's often shared by a couple other movies that also are one character. I think there's an S or an R. I don't know. There is a movie called the movie, the movie. I know it's, it really is a true title. The movie is about a guy who gets changed into a humanoid kind of serpent, and then finally turns into a snake at the end of the movie. It sounds um, pretty wacky, but it is wacky. So this came out nineteen thirty one. It's a movie about a child murderer uh, who's gone to loose. Warning! 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 There is child murder. 
Um, it does not show the child murder, but it does. It does hint that it happens, and it is. It's unsettling. It, do, it doesn't have any overt uh, violence. If somebody wants to show this to you know somebody young enough who's young enough to see a movie with with cursing in it, it is German. German with subtitles. We do recommend. Uh, that you see it. But honestly, yeah, do watch this movie. It's really great. Um, it doesn't matter if it's German at all. Don't let that bother you at all. Literally, you you will be missing out if you don't watch this movie with the original performances. They're pretty great. So um, that being said, um, this movie is about a child murder. His name is Hans Beckert, and um, he's terrorizing this city. Um, the people are getting restless um, with this, you know, murder going about. And um, the police are trying their very, very hardest to try and catch this dude, um, you know, just barging into people's homes without warrants, you know, trying to search. They're trying very desperately to do this. They're under pressure, man. They're under pressure by families. They're under pressure by the inspector, head inspector. He's even, under pressure from the, the government of the city. Yeah. Even the criminals are also like, dude, we, we got to get rid of this dude. Uh, we can't we can't even do crime anymore without being noticed because there's police everywhere and anywhere um, checking everyone and anyone. Look, here's the thing. You could have, a, a, even in modern jails and prisons nowadays, if you have people that go in, this is, they're like, oh, I robbed a place. Oh, I got picked up for, for drugs. Or I, I, I'm in the mafia. Okay, okay. But then two doors down from them is a child murderer. That guy's not going to last. He's going to get killed in the shower. He just, I'm sorry. You know, it's like there's almost a hierarchy or level of crimes that people will accept. Like, oh, I'll accept you're a fellow criminal. You're a murderer. Okay, you're a this, you're a that. That guy over there is a child murderer. All right, well, he's he's done. And that has happened many times in modern history, and it is reflected in this movie. Um, but the plot of this movie is the criminals, they eventually, through their methods, are the first one to eventually get to Hans Beckert. They identify him with a, uh, a guy, he's also kind of like a criminal beggar dude, he's just on the street, and he notices him, and, um, he chases after him, he puts a M on his hand and slaps his, uh, coat with chalk, and that is also the, the poster of the movie has the big hand with the letter M on it, and that's how they identify him, and then they eventually catch him into a very climactic, uh, very, 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 very notable, very good scene. He escapes them, and, and he holds himself up in some buildings that are closed. And the criminals, they actually break into the building uh, across from there, and, and or nearby, and they're able to, to kind of flush him out. And they enact their own uh, kind of twisted justice, and it's it's... The last scene is just you can't take your eyes off the screen. Anyway, <laughs> we'll go into more detail when we get to the plot part. So, as with all of our uh, podcast episodes, we're going to cover a production and a plot, um, which will be two separate sections. Uh, we'll go into the plot first, which is going to be handled by me this time. So, the director of this movie is uh, Fritz Lang. He is known for Metropolis. Um, he's pretty cool. That's a another movie. It's like, one of the first science fiction films. It's also known for being, like, mostly lost because they cut away of it. And, um, fortunately, we have all of the scenes except there's, like, one scene of, like, um, I don't know. There's, like, this monk character, and he's, like, preaching to people, and they're, like, all kumbaya or something. Um, but <laughs> who knows? That's the one scene we don't have because it was in terrible condition. But fortunately, we've restored the entire thing. Some of the scenes, you'll, you'll be watching it, and then the scenes will look, good and then there's ones where it looks like 
they're in a rainstorm. Like there's these white lines going down the screen and it looks rough, but then it'll go back into normal. And it would just be great if we could just find those, uh, the original negatives of that. But unfortunately, they were excised. They were excised. So first of all, we have Fritz Lang, the director. Uh, He placed an advertisement in the newspaper in 1930, the year before this movie came out, uh, about this film. Uh, is film idea for this, uh, under the working title, Murder Under Uns, which is uh, Murder Among Us, um, however funny that statement might be. Today, yeah, today, because of the video game. Yeah. 2020. However, he got backlash for this. Uh, there's threatening letters, there's denial uh, by the Stockton studio, uh, which was where he wanted to, to place it in. Uh, so they denied it, um, but he went and he asked um, why. And the reason was is because they thought, oh, well, your story seems to be having a government. Now, this government, it awfully seems like the, the Nazi government that's uh, placed itself uh, kind of recently. Now, we don't like that because it's a it, it's not really a uh, positive light on them. He, he, he was trying to make deeper points. And if you watch the movie and you kind of look for those deeper elements, you'll see them. And it does kind of reflect the world in which Nazism was starting to thrive, but it doesn't officially like in big bold letters call out the nazi party but it does call out the deeper things that may have um underneath the nazis i don't understand why they would think it had anything to do with them it's it's definitely explainable yeah however m survived uh it was eventually shot in uh, six weeks at the stocken zeppelin halle something like something <laughs> like that uh close the, enough the stocken zeppelin halle studio uh just outside berlin Lang uh, made the film distributed by uh, Nero Film. Uh, it's a small company instead of uh, something like UFA, which is uh, Universum Film Aktenschelschaft. Uh, not, not bad, not bad, not bad. You're it's better at this. And I'm going to butcher it, okay? It's German. It's German, just so you know, German film. We're trying. We're trying. We're our trying. Best. So basically, that translates to Universal Film Public Company. Basically, Universal, uh, but Germany which literally shares the word universal. Another thing to note is that Nero Films and um, Janus Films um, also seem to have a lot of their films in the Criterion Collection. Why is that important? Because that's the version we watched. And um, as we note, there is um, the Criterion Collection is full of a lot of movies, which uh, critics uh, enjoy, uh, filmophiles. And um, that's what they put this in, rightfully so. Also, they're restored. A lot of Criterion stuff is is they spend the time to restore it. They see it as historically significant. A lot of movies that we have there are from that era that, that some say are they're lost and that they've been restored. It's because they're actually really good. I don't know. I'd have to have somebody come and bring me a really terrible movie that that, that someone has actually restored, spent spent the time to restore. <laughs> Because they'll only allow him to do it if it's historically, you know, significant. Yeah, but the funny thing is, uh, Janus Films, um, which also seems to have some of the stuff in Criterion Collection, uh, actually owns Criterion, so that would also make sense. Uh, Janus Films is uh, Italian, and uh, Nero Film is uh, uh, German, as we'll see. Um, Lang would again uh, collaborate uh, again with Nero uh, with the, the Testament of Dr. Mabuza, uh, 1934. Um, this would spell fate for uh, Fritz Lang, as we'll talk about later. That sounds very uh, uh, mysterious and dark. Yes, M for mysterious. Oh, no. <laughs> so, many titles before M were chosen, all, of course, with the murder in the name. Um, another thing that's interesting is uh, Fritz Lang would interview uh, child murderers, um, like in hospitals and stuff, uh, for inspiration. 
Uh, he also used a couple of real criminals as the extras in this movie, um, especially, you know, when you have that big climactic scene with all of the, the people and the criminals together. Um, that would make sense. There was a there was a real serial killer who killed uh, children in Germany. He was, his name was Peter Curtin. He was called the Vampire of Dusseldorf, and I think he interviewed him. That probably would make sense, but... Uh, some critics and viewers were saying that uh, he was based on him, but Lang was uh, denied it, saying that they were, there, there were a lot of killers uh, at the time of Inception. So wow. why could it be that one person, uh, Peter Kirk? That, that might be true. Um, but funny thing is, about those uh, criminals that he hired uh, for this movie, um, for being criminals in the movie, uh, 25 extras would be arrested during shooting of this movie. Oh my... Um, so the police were like, they realized there were criminals here, and they arrested a bunch of people. So that's kind of funny, um, especially at the end when they all get uh, kind of arrested by the police. Um, who knows? That would probably be like a very realistic moment that's, for them. That's, uh, you know, life-reflecting life art, is it what they call it? <laughs> probably. So um, Lang's picture of the Berlin underworld uh, seems to have inspiration from the, the Ring Verne. Ring, Ring Verein something like that, uh, which shares a similarity to mafias, which is uh, Italian roots. Um, for instance, uh, them providing financial support uh, for the families of imprisoned members uh, was inspired from reality. Um, also, Wikipedia notes the, the break-in scene uh, in M, which is like the, the big part toward the end of the movie. Um, it got inspiration from the, the Disconso bank break-in uh, by the Saws brothers, although that was for theft, but it could have taken a bit of inspiration from the Saws brothers. It also notes that the Ring Varen uh, saw themselves as very respectable, very middle class. Uh, like the Mafia, the Ring Verne paradoxically portrayed themselves uh, as a force for social order, uh, unlike r- recklessness and a fear spreading. Um, so they're kind of like, you know, we're, we're the higher up, gentlemanly. The gentleman thief. <laughs> the gentleman thief. Yeah, we, we steal stuff, but we're, we're not, I mean, we're not monsters i mean you see 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 you see what i said there it's like <laughs> we might be criminals but we're not monsters you know that's why they call it organized crime and um, mafias would be a lot kind of like that they're very you know respectable gentlemen kind of you know things although they have like a a mafian uh, accent which would be used a lot in movies you know you said organized well uh, very often early uh serial killers when they're first starting out are very disorganized. Um, they don't. They're trying to figure out what they like, the victims that they like to kill, the ways in which they like to kill them, the ways in which they like to. You know, I'm not speaking from experience. I actually, <laughs> I've listened to a lot of uh, true crime podcasts, uh, and I had to quit because it got too dark, and it just it was very depressing. Uh, it was fascinating, but it gets you're seeing the darker side of people, and I just, I just. I couldn't do it anymore. So it's like, you know, I see that man. Uh, nah, man. Just don't, please. Just live a normal life. We also get that Fritz Lang wrote that the, the crime scene in Germany was such compelling cinematic material uh, that I lived in constant fear that someone else would exploit this idea before me. So he was like, I, I just got all this inspiration in, in my knuckles that I, I want be- to I, put in this movie. <laughs> I better do it before somebody else sees all the coolness that I do and makes a movie, um, you know, and honestly, this movie is cool. Not better than M. Yeah. Germany at the time, uh, or as it was kind of fading out uh, by 1931. The Weimar Republic. The right. Weimar Republic, right. Um, it also had parties arguing over their country's uh, capital punishment system, uh, just like this movie. Uh, this movie 
uh, for those don't know, it deals a lot with, you know, the justice system and the uh, humans and society. You know, we live in a society. <laughs> nah, nah. So, well, both of, but hey, the jo- both the Joker and this movie have a, you know, a killer that they then they wonder if they need to put him in uh, into an asylum or not, if that's the best place for them. Yeah, it's just like this movie. People are arguing, you know, kill kill the beast. Some are like, no, uh, put him in the the sane, sane asylum. Uh, put him in uh, Ar- Arkham, yeah, Arkham, Arkham Asylum. <laughs> you get what I mean. But um, what if he? Yeah, what if he gets out? You know, there's there's a lot of those you know kind of arguments being laid out, and it's it's really compelling. It leaves you a lot to think about. You know, it's, there's just a, a big ideology of you know. What if what if their minds are just they're damaged and that's the cause of all the the root of you know all of their their killings that it manifests out? What if they can't help it? Um, just note this was 1931. Okay, this was the infancy of the sound era. This was Fritz Lang's first sound film uh, that he ever did, and it's really amazing. Best of Germany. That's like somebody their first baseball game. Knocking, knocking it out of the park on every time they hit. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like he goes, "I'm gonna try to do sound," and he kills it. You know what it's I'm saying? It's like you know, he's, it's like going down to sit down. It's like, okay, I'm gonna roll uh, a d20, and it's yeah. going to land one <laughs> critical twenty hit. times, and yeah, then it exactly. literally does that. So yeah, he just he was a really great director. I don't think this movie. Uh, has has like a you know how we talked about King Kong in '33 had a soundtrack that you could almost kind of listen to the soundtrack without watching the movie and know exactly what scene you were on and what they were doing in the movie. You know, it was all the motifs and everything. But this movie has none of that. But wait, it does use sound, but in in a way that enhances the scenes. You know. Um, whistling or bouncing a ball oh there's tons of good scenes about that like it uses uh, it uses a lot of sounds you know outside of view uh some examples um uh when a car beeps at elsie uh, who's a little girl we'll meet uh in the plot uh off screen before passing by visibly um that's obviously a use of sound off screen uh when hans is hiding in the 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 storage room um, while the the criminals are you know absolutely demolishing the places with like axes, uh, like pickaxes and jackhammers, you know, just like they're they're decimating the whole place and trashing the whole place um, entirely off screen. Um, while you just you can see his scared face as he's uh, waiting in the shadows um, to not be discovered. That contributes a, contributes a lot to the the thriller that this is. This movie's thriller. It's pretty cool. There's another example uh, when the blind balloon seller, uh, he hears uh, the really bad organ grinder, and he covers his ears. Um, when he does that, uh, the sound mutes, and also unmutes at will when he uncups and cups his ears, respectively. Oh, like a POV, kind of a POV shot for your ears. Yeah, and um, another one is that they overlay audio of two different scenes sometimes. Like, for instance, uh, near the beginning, there's a crowd in front of the newspaper. Uh, someone starts to read it just for, uh, there's a group of bargoers in uh, the next sort of location scene. Um, and he's reading the newspaper instead of the guy who's reading the newspaper over there. So it's overlaying the future film's audio onto the previous uh shots visuals i i've heard i've heard a youtuber uh video editor he called that a j cut it kind of superimposes across the locations i find that really interesting yeah and and you and you you see it all the time in modern film and it's these movies like him 
that started it all, revolutionized it, did it well, and we see the effects of what they're doing. Both sound and the visuals are used to tell a story as compared to just the visuals. And um, normally, you know, people aren't used to this stuff. They're just like, hey, it's a movie. I'm going to watch the movie. But, like, the sound is important. We, t- we take it for granted. We do take a lot of things for granted. And then when you go back and watch silent movies, it really wakes you up to yeah. how important Yeah, just all watch is. all of the offerings of 1931 and you'll realize... Um, in fact, actually, we kind of did that um, with 1932. Yeah, we did. Um, so, you know, watch all those and then watch this film and you realize that he's just... Fritz Lang is so ahead of his time, just with a lot of things. There's a lot of revolu- a lot of revolutionary stuff uh, here in the 30s. I mean, just you know, like how the people of the city are, you know, revolutionizing against their government. You know, abolitionism just absolutely going forth. So, this movie eventually released. I know uh, it's it's impossible. How I didn't know it released. How how can it release? But yeah, um, for those who don't know, it did release um, <laughs> as we have it right now. Um, M premiered in Berlin at the, the UFA Palace at the Zoo, uh, in a version lasting one hour, 57 minutes. The Criterion Collection, um, as you're we talking about, they released the Criterion Collection one hour and 49 minute version, uh, using prints for the same period, uh, from the cinema... Actually, it's pronounced Cinematic for Swiss. Uh, it's Swiss, um, and the Netherlands Film Museum. Uh, Criterion Collection version is the one with the one that we watched uh, on HBO Max, and also I think we've seen uh, copies out there on the YouTube's if you want to find that. Uh, I have something sparked in my mind. You said they they showed it at a place that had a zoo, and I was like, didn't we have another movie that was German made that that showed at a film thing that had a zoo next door? Was it? I was think it Nosferatu. Have... Yeah, Nosferatu and M. Have been like the only German films we've really covered, except for Caligari, obviously, and um, uh, Dark Golem. Um, but yeah, exactly. That's, it's uh, been yeah. a while since we've covered German films, uh, which is really interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, we're probably not going to see uh, the majority of these are going to be American films, and then uh, then we're going to see a good handful uh, of Japanese film. Um, we're going to see some British science fiction movies. Um, kind of in there, but unfortunately we're not going to see a lot of German movies. Uh, but hey, you know, we're, a lot of those directors that did make film in Germany, they did move out and do Hollywood pictures. So, you know, we may see some of those directors. Yeah, so uh, the film was later released in uh, the U.S. Uh, in April 1933 uh, by Faremco Pictures. Uh, after two weeks, Faremco committed the, the great sin of replacing subs with dubs. <sighs> Peter Lorre, the uh, actor for Hans Beckert, um, Ex- excellent, re- excellent, actor, excellent actor. Chef's kiss. Wasn't this uh, his third movie? And then, of course, uh, he. I think his first uh, English speaking was the man who knew too much. Yeah, I've seen that. That 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 one's really good. And then he then of course he he was he got well known. Was he a comic a comedy guy early on, and then he did he switched and did something more dramatic, and he got well known for that, or I don't know. Yeah, and then he kind of went back more to comedy. But um, Peter Lorre, he reprised himself. Uh, in this English dub version, uh, having already learned English from, uh, you know, fleeing Germany. 
um, as we'll as we'll see. He fled Germany in 1934. Was he was he part Jewish? Well, Fritz Lang was like part Jewish, but um, they both they both fled Germany. Either he was Jewish or he was pro Jewish and left. Yeah. So M. It was partially reshot uh, with some actors. Pierre Laurie, he's uh, redoing his acting and uh, also dubbing over himself in foreign languages. Uh, this was all without Fritz Lang's involvement, though. So this English dub is really interesting. Um, from looking at it, well, they replace everyone with, like, British-sounded people. And um, there's a lot of moments where they fade from a scene where they're looking at a, a German text they fade into a scene that's kind of equivalent, but also not, obviously. You can tell that it's a fade right. into a new thing, um, where they have English text instead. You can see this at the beginning, where this this iconic shot. Uh, they pan over to this uh, the newspaper telling about the, the murder and the bounty and the, how terrible he is, while the murderer, uh, Hans Beckert, uh, is silhouetted against it as he asks uh, Elsie Beckman uh, how pretty her ball is. But in the English dub, they, they fade into this... Uh, like a whiteboard? It kind of looks like a whiteboard, honestly. It, it's this flat surface, and um, Elsie, in the German, she's uh, bouncing a ball against this wanted poster, this news poster, and yeah. um, they fade into an equivalent scene with the English text while they have this uh, ball from another angle bouncing onto it. And it's like, it looks so fake, it looks so bad. So that to answer the question of, okay, it's a German film, how are you going to use clips of the 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 movie when it's not in a language I can't even understand. I personally will dub over the audio, obviously making it so you can hear the original performances as that is the the good thing. Don't watch the English dub, watch the original, it's really good for the performances, but I'll dub over it myself with the the English words. Um it'll be pretty interesting to try, but um it'll be it'll be pretty sweet and uh, you'll be able to hear uh in this in the final scene of the movie his just absolutely raw performance of uh Hans Becker. Yeah, absolutely. So but but I I would say this, you know, many times when people try to do an American version of a movie that was so iconic, some many times it takes away from it. Although the benefit is that it gets a wider release because a lot more people are willing to see it. Also, the first the first moments of the film um, which is really ominous. There's like a child. Uh, they're playing like a little game. They're outing people. Um, you know, with the uh, the man in black's cleaver uh, strikes so true, he'll make mincemeat out of you. Um, in the English version, uh, they changed the man in black to the China man. Oof. Yikes! Yeah. Oof, yikes. yikes! Yeah. Yikes! There's an oof yikes moment. The um. China man. Here comes the China man. Creepy feet. Well, also, do you, do you think that the reason why, with things going on in Germany about the time that they were starting to do this, do you think people were like, um, I'm hearing about this Nazi thing, um, and this uh, Germans, I don't know, and then that's why they it, that's why they decided to do a lot of that. Germany was in a lot of hot water uh, during the Nazi regime in Germany, especially with you know all of the censorship and you know being like, are you trying to be against the Nazi uh, regime uh, with this specific movie? In this case, uh, M survived, even though, as I said previously, uh, the Stocken, uh studio uh, questioned them. Uh, against this uh, reason, with this reasoning. Um, so, uh, the the reception of the movie, uh, the initial response uh, had Variety saying M was a little too long. Uh, cutting could have been done. Uh, Graham Greene, 
uh, said it was like looking through a microscope through which the tangled mind is exposed, laid flat on the slide. Uh, love and lust, nobility and pers- perversity, right. uh, hatred of itself and the despair jumping at you uh, from the jelly. I uh, I like his... I like his it's, review. It's it's a pretty odd review. I, it's it's very it's very ev- evocative. I do like though, though if you listen to somebody saying that the movie is a little long, they might be right that some things could be edited out. But the thing is though, don't. It uses the length of the scenes when unnecessarily so, and it's just sitting in silence at stuff for effect. It's it's honestly for atmosphere and so that you focus on it instead of, you know, whipping past it like it's nothing like most uh, people like American Westerns or something would do. Um, this movie decides to, to linger on its scenes. It's trying to tell you there's something important here that we have to say for this. You're marinating in the juices. You're, you're It's co- slowly cooking you to death. Another thing that's interesting is that this movie, uh, in fact, recorded a ton of their scenes uh, without the the sound at all so normally when it'd just be you know you'd hear the sound of someone stepping um in some in a lot of scenes uh they just didn't record the audio so there's just paralyzing silence uh met through you and there's just silence there's no music he's just being surrounded it's so ominous there's not even any footstep noises either they don't even record anything now this was probably to save money but honestly i feel like it's to great effect of just this wall of silence instead of, you know, just hearing, you know, noise or, like, uh, sounds of footsteps and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so silence as well as sound is also used for effect um, as well because the absence of sound is also sound in and of itself, uh, I believe. Wow, that's, uh, that's a Facebook quote right there. That's, you <laughs> that's know, a Facebook or, quote. That's an, Insta- that's an Instagram quote for the day. But nowadays, uh, people... Uh, recognize it for being really good, in fact. Uh, 100% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the site's critics' consensus reads, a landmark psychological thriller uh, with arresting images, deep thoughts on modern society, and Peter Lorre in his finest performance. I would agree so. I would too. Also, I found out that that some would say it's the first uh, serial killer movie uh, ever made. That's untrue. I think that would go to Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock's The Lodger, I think. Yeah, The Lodger. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we have a Mark Savlov of uh, Austin Chronicle uh, awarded the film five stars, calling it one of the greatest of all German expressionistic films. German expressionistic. Now, that evokes kind of like a more uh, German expressionism films, as we've seen with such as uh, the, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, which is honestly the one of the greatest displays of uh, German expressionism. It's yeah. more painterly, more of like a more like a fabricated kind of worldview that's like twisted and um, kind of painterly as they you know painted all the scenes. But this has no painting. Shadow, though. They're trying. They're think trying that... to say the shadow. I think. Yeah, yeah. The, the the use of shadow and light at angle. And and all that I think is is still expressionistic, but yeah, I the think cinematography five stars way ahead of its time for 1931. It's very good, and and like I said, the cornerstone of the entire movie is is definitely the last scene, the 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 courtroom uh, scene, as I might call it. As uh, people would call it a kangaroo court, although obviously the word kangaroo um, sounds a bit more humorous than the situation calls for, unfortunately. But critic Roger Ebert uh, added M to his great movies list, uh, calling relatively reserved dialogue 
uh, as a critical factor uh, in its success. Um, I would I would say so. There's a lot of there's a lot of times when there's dialogue, but then there's sometimes where there's silence, and then there's sometimes where you're supposed to be reading the text um, that they do. For instance, there's this small little scene of um, the report that was handed into the inspector, and he's kind of you know underlining it about the, you know the red pencil, uh, the mahogany uh, table or windowsill or something. Yeah, um, yeah. He did correct an error though, which is a a character. Um, little thing where he's like, "Oh, there's an error in the in the German word." Uh, that, I thought that was a bit funny. He also said, uh, "What I sense is that Lang hated the people around him, hated Nazism, and hated Germany for permitting it." Fritz Lang is kind of against uh, Nazism, is what he said. I would I, I would say so. He's you know I think he also he leaves us with questions that he doesn't fully answer. Yeah, there's no there's no answer to the end of this movie. I, I sometimes I like those because sometimes I don't, but sometimes I do where it, it's it's fulfilling to really just kind of let it like 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 uh like like a piece of candy you have in your mouth. You kind of roll it around and, and taste the flavor of it and really think and let it kind of sit in your brain and kind of go, "What what would you do?" or what do you think they're trying to say there? And, and oftentimes in 1931, they would not be presented with this question. Even in 1941, as we'll cover in Citizen Kane, uh, they did not really receive philosophical questions, um, really. They were just, they watched a movie, and they were like, oh, cool, it's a movie. They weren't asked something personally. The, it didn't have an open ending as much as M did, uh, which is pretty interesting. So, yeah, this movie, uh, it was Fritz Lang's favorite, regarded one of the greatest films of all time widely. Uh, by most people, including me, I think it's really great. You I would too. say it's it's one of the top. I would say so. Yeah, it was voted the best German film of all time by the Association of German Cinemath. Not pronouncing that. Uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's even it's even listed in one the one thousand and one movies you should see before you die. So see it right now, or else you're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're gonna hear some, some this somebody whistling uh, in the Hall of the Mountain King, like uh, a couple you know feet behind you. With his like, cleaver's blade, so true, he'll make mincemeat out, mince out of you. So the film is also referenced in the song "In Germany Before the War," which is funny because this is Germany before the war uh, by Randy Newman and his album "Little Criminals." R- Randy R- Randy Newman, of course, uh, he did uh, the music for Toy Story. Yeah, you that's got a, you've got a friend in me, and you got a friend in me. You got a pretty balloon. (laughs) What's your name? I'm going to kill you. No, no. No, Woody, don't do that. No, Woody, no. Who said your job was to think, Spring Wiener? Why, I just Just use this vast reserve of brain power to consider this for a moment. If it wasn't for me, Andy wouldn't pay any attention to you at all. In fact, my sketchy friend, you would have been hauled away to Goodwill a long time ago. So shut your mouth and get them off the bed. Anyway, uh, a scene from the movie uh, was used in 1940 Nazi propaganda film, uh, The Eternal Jew, uh, which means the Jew was eternal and they couldn't defeat it, I guess. Yeah, the, there also was, I think, um, as remember in Der Golem, there was this callback to this uh, this immortal uh, Jew, the wandering Jew, um, and, and he, that was a stereotype. You're, you're taking a people and giving them this mythical status of of they're just going to d- drag us down so we have to get rid of them that ultimately that that brings in mind uh a an aspect of this movie it's something called utilitarianism talked about originally in the 1800s by a guy named Jeremy Bentham and his whole point was uh that you have to do 
what is the best for the most people. Especially for this movie, there's, like, people going, you know, kill him so that he doesn't bother us again. Some people are going, you know, save him. Where does that end? Where does, Where that, does end? that end? People are just like, you know, do you help the one person, the one sickly, versus the entire people who want him gone? Uh, so they don't have to deal with them anymore. Oh, also, also, the thing is, utilitarianism, if you don't watch it, can can definitely uh, feed into it. And if you think about it, Nazism, they were, their whole uh, thing was, you know, the Jew, the Roma, any of those kind of people, we have to kill them because they're they're like this disease on society. And with, and, and if we don't get rid of them, they'll drag us all down. And also the, also the other thing, too, the people who are mentally challenged or mentally, quote, infirm, or people who are the elderly, or people who are handicapped, physically challenged, I guess is a better word, those would be horrible to us. We would look at that and go, that's that's terrible. You're looking at my friend and you're saying that he needs to be killed because he's dragging society down. But that's utilitarianism taken to its ultimate end. That's probably why they'd see the Nazi, the, the government in this movie as a Nazi government. So there was a 1951 remake uh, of M, in fact, which I, th- I, I, don't, I don't really know why, but uh, it apparently it's set in, in a Los Angeles as compared to, I don't know what city it is in, but it's a big, awful big city, probably Berlin. Uh, unfortunately, it could be so. Which Nero Films uh, had Seymour Nembenzel uh, produced and uh, Joseph Losey uh, directed uh, for Columbia Pictures. Pretty interesting. So Lang, he'd once told a reporter... People tell me why I do not remake M in English. I have no reason to do that. I I said all I had to say about that subject in the picture. Uh, Now I have other things to say. So he's just like, uh, that. that's why the English dub, he he wouldn't have done it um, if he could, if he had control over the world. No, and he he didn't, I think he died before the remake came out, right? Even still, the remake uh, was directed by Joseph Losey, starred David Wayne. Uh, Losey said he watched it, but he never referred to it. Uh, he only repeated a single shot. Ugh. Like, just a, a couple of shots. He's just like, okay, I'll go off of these one or two shots. That's kind of, that's kind of dumb, man. I think David Wayne would later play, uh, a character. He played, I uh, played the Mad Hatter in Batman, uh, the 1960s series. He, David Wayne, um, so that's how I know him. Yeah. And we and and we will do the Batman 1960s movie later on. Yeah, so let's get on to the cast. Um, so first, I want to talk about Fritz Lang. He's the director of this movie. Um, a, a pretty interesting thing is uh, his 1929 film, uh, Woman in the Moon. It didn't do so well as much as uh, Metropolis also didn't really do so hot as well. He showcased someone going to space on a multi-stage rocket, uh, which pioneered the concept of a rocket launch pad, uh, which was a rocket, you know, standing upright against a tall building, you know, before launch, uh, having been slowly rolled in place. Uh, and the rocket launched con- the countdown clock, you know, the famous, you know, T-5, 4, 3, 2, 1 launch. I find that really interesting because... He's ahead of his time again. <laughs> he's ahead of his time again. He he made this stuff in this movie 40 years in advance. Even still, uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, came up with uh, apparently it came up with, like, machine guns and uh, early helicopter designs, like, 500 years ago, so... Right. Great minds think alike, or <laughs> great minds are great minds, basically. Right. Yeah. So, again, he had lots of trouble with the Nazi government uh, due to suspicions toward Metropolis M, uh, and the final straw being the last testament of Dr. Mabuza, um, which had Nazi phrases uh, spoken by the villain. And uh, the characters, uh, comparatively regular people uh, to the, the, the government, the, the state, uh, they had them violently overthrowing the state 
uh, to Mabuza's uh, orders, I think. So, um, that's pretty interesting. And so they're like, you know what, this is the final straw. This is, you were against us, um, we don't like you. Uh, again, he was also half Jew because his mother, uh, was a Jew, but she went to Catholicism, so, eh, who knows, he wasn't really raised in the Jewish mindset. Um, so do all these factors, uh, he fled Germany in, uh, 1936. Now let's get a little bit down to Peter Lorre. He is the, the lead actor. He's Hans Beckert. He does a lot of good for this film. Uh, he does, he plays the role really well, and he just, you can feel pity for the murderer, which is something that people ordinarily wouldn't really do uh, in movies. You know, they have the murderer. He's just a murderer. Kill him. Kill the beast. Um, but you actually feel pity for him, regardless of all of his actions. But you still consider his actions as being terrible, um, which is the, the, the dilemma uh, in this movie. Kind of like the train dilemma, you know, the, the multiple people versus the one person. Uh, which do you hit with your train track? So M was Peter Lorre's uh, first major role. Uh, it boosted his career, even though he was uh, typecasted as a villain for years afterward. Especially in uh, Columbia's Crime and Punishment. Ha! Huh. Because, get, get it? Because murder. There's a murder in that movie. Wasn't, uh, is, when is that Leo? That's not Leo. That's not Tolstoy. Who did, who did Crime and Punishment? Who was it that? like Dostoevsky? Dostoevsky? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying my best, okay? Uh, we're we're giving it a shot. We're I'm trying best. my best not to pronounce anything because I'm I, I'm just butchering it today. All right. I I remember him for playing like uh, foreign agents, uh, you know, like 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 spies and you know bad guys, and he also played um, um, kind of other kind of criminal characters. He was in a movie called The Maltese Falcon. Yes, honestly, perfect. That was kind of that. That was like a film noir. Um, that was the first film noir, uh, or the second film noir. It was one of one of the first. One yeah. of the first. And the the Maltese Falcon has Humphrey Bogart. So he worked with Humphrey Bogart, uh, in the Maltese Falcon, uh, in Casablanca as well. Casablanca as well. He was well. with and Fred Astaire in Silk Stockings, nineteen fifty seven, which is pretty interesting. I He's think it was a, that. They think that was a comedy. Yeah, that was like a sort of comedy musical sort of thing. Uh, he was also in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, uh, yes. nineteen fifty four, um, which I is on Disney movie. Plus. I in fact uh, watched it, but um, I was rewatching it for him. Honestly, seeing him speaking English and um, also being old, I'm not, I'm kind of not used to that. So I'm watching it. Well, in this movie, in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, he's a side character, so he's kind of doing his best. He doesn't really do. Uh, to a good job, but he's eh, fine. He's fine. He's a side character. That's all he booked who for. Who else? Who else was in Casablanca that we've done a movies of? Uh, Fayre. Conrad Veidt. Conrad Veidt. Yes, right. So Conrad Veidt, uh, Humphrey Bogart, and uh, Peter Lorre. He was also on Stranger of the Third Floor, which, as I was saying, the very first recognized film noir. The second would be um, the Maltese Falcon. Honestly, perfect. He was like in the one of the first film noirs, which is really interesting. Uh, he was also in You'll Find Out, 1940, with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. So he was with the two stars of the Universal Monster Films. Uh, just, just, oh, uh, did he... He was also in a movie with, um, Vincent Price, another of those kind of actors who shows up in a lot of those creepy movies and has that very recognizable voice. I think he was... I think was it the terror? I don't know. It may have been the Raven or something. He was in a movie with Vincent Price. Uh, I think Roger Corman directed. You know what? My memory is all all awash. So if you keep 
you know, listing his movies, I'm sure we'll get to that. So, uh, yeah, that's where we're end, at our ends, uh, at our world's ends, uh, with, um, the production of, uh, M, and, um, since we don't have too much time, we'll, uh, move on to the plot, um, in the next section. Yes, but what I will tell you is this, is that we will try to cover this as, as much, much as we can, and give it as much, uh, depth as we can, but there's no substitute to finding this movie and watching it. We will, you, you can we find it. We will dub over with English um, for the, the clips that we'll have in this episode. That'll be something that you'll have to be used to for watching this podcast. But honestly, if it's in German, do not let that stop you. It's an amazing movie. There's great cinematography, great story, great use of sound and silence and camera, and the setting is honestly really great. Um, you'll be hooked into this one to an extreme level. Uh, I was honestly, um, but it also because of the lingeringness of the movie, it'll it'll lower your blood pressure. Um, it also did with mine. So, <laughs> but do not let. It being in a different language stop you. I mean, Ed, there's uh, a ton of other great movies as well that are in different languages, uh, like uh, Bicycle Thieves. Uh, that one's Italian, uh, Janice Films. Um, so that that one's also entirely in Italian, so don't let that stop you. Go watch that movie. If you have the capacity to be able to read very fluently, then just watch the movie. I mean, y- you can do it. Power through. Um, it's honestly, it's a really great movie. Don't let, uh, the language barrier, uh, stop you from watching it. Don't let it stop you from seeing it. Don't, uh, just, honestly, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you can glance down at the subtitles, but still watch the movie. See, it's easy. Yeah, you can do it. So here's the thing, though, um, you know, a lot of, uh, I think a lot more people nowadays, uh, a lot wider variety of people are, are, accepting of that and and I would I would point out a couple things like uh, Korean uh, soap operas and dramas those are all subtitled uh, people really got into squid game and squid game was subtitled so think about animes that. are also and subtitles. Anime. yeah yeah although I will tell you sometimes anime is is dubbed well but most of the time the subs the subs are better because you can hear the, the original Japanese actors performances original nani you don't want to hear somebody go like what? He's like, Nani? See, I'm already doing it. You know, it's like the the you know the expression of the vo- of the original actor. You know, they worked so hard. I mean, even still in this final scene, as we'll see, like Peter Lorre, Fritz Lang, just absolutely, he almost like was the degree of torturing him during this final scene to get this really? emotive rawness. He pushed him down those stairs. There's just one little part of the final scene where he falls down the stairs, and he pushed him down him literally like thousands of times, almost. Probably like at least a hundred. So that he'd just be crying out to stop as much as he would for this actual crowd. two instances I can there's a lot of other ones I could think of but there's two instances like I think that Akira Kurosawa uh, who directed some of the 
the samurai movies we're going to see, he actually would shoot real arrows in the direction of some of these uh, soldiers and actors, and it would like it would wake them up, you know, like oh crap. Also, um, in the movie The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, who was infamously very punishing of his actors, he 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 would do a, a take. He did a take with um, one actress so many times that actually I think that. Uh, her mind kind of broke a little bit, and she later, later the issues that she had that she had later in her life, she says that that was a very traumatizing experience for her, and it shows. She's just she's losing it in the movie, uh, so that may be the actress losing it in real life. Anyway, wow, uh, we're really uh, <laughs> making everybody not depressed now. So anyway, um, yeah, we're gonna talk about the plot. We're gonna go into that. And we're also uh, going to talk about what we liked about this movie, because everyone's wondering, okay, I've heard a little bit about this movie, um, I'm possibly interested in watching this for myself, which honestly I do recommend, but um, tell, tell us more, William and Jason, about why, this, why is this movie so good in depth, and we'll try and do that. We're going to plumb those depths, we're going to take this movie... Uh, we're gonna trap. We're gonna it hide in, in, in the corner of a storage room and wait for the criminals to stop making their sounds in our in our off screen. We're gonna take this movie and take it down to a cellar. And we're gonna interrogate it along with all the victims of this movie and and it. No, that's terrible. You know these <laughs> these things we're trying to do. Where <laughs> sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, and you have to watch us kind of just struggle like. Like a bug underneath uh, a shoe. <laughs> a shoe. Bless right, you. We, we, bless you too. We will see you soon uh, for the second half of uh, M by Fritz Lang. Uh, all right, see you soon. Bye. <laughs> to the podcast it is i william and jason my father doing a podcast where we talk about a movie about society and um also made by a great director honestly he, he he's just one of the best directors out there i think he even inspired a little bit of a uh, alfred hitchcock stuff actually you know his thrillers uh do seem to be very influential for the alfred hitchcock stuff he's uh he's he's the precursor i mean he took you know some of those uh, elements of suspense and darkness and tension. And he mixed them with his ideas of you know society and how government should work, especially with how how does justice work? You know, what does justice look like? Justice for one man is justice, unjustice for another man. Then how do you deal with that? It's also who gets to say. And I mean, Metropolis um, also kind of explores society, except with the uh, classism. Sort of classism, thing. yeah. Even exactly. in this movie, we do get kind of a, a classism thing. But yeah, we're getting a little off topic. We're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit. But I think uh, as we unpack it, as we peel open this onion, you know, and get to the deeper elements, we're gonna we're gonna see those kind of peek out as we go. But so therefore, it's an ogre. It's an ogre. In this movie, you can just watch it on a surface level and and get something from you know both the suspense, the tension, the 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 character. The, dr- the drama. But there are great themes to this one. And it especially helps if you understand, you know, that this is uh, post-World War I uh, Weimar Germany. 
and how it was developing. And, and how was... movies were generally at the time. Yes. It's just uncomparable. Well, knowing knowing about the history of, of Germany at this time and what, and what Fritz Lang was possibly trying to say um, actually makes it a little bit more of a deeper film. But you can watch it on a surface level and still enjoy it. I mean, since it's German, honestly, as we said, don't let that bother you. If you have a bilingual girlfriend or something... Uh, maybe knows a little bit of German. Invite her <laughs> or him. Who knows? You might have a boyfriend. Depends on gender. Um, but yeah, my father is on the plot of this movie. I'm making a plan. I'm making a plot. He's orchestrating Get, a crime. Or- orchestrating a, a heist, uh, an idea heist, as we uh, kind of you know steal into this uh, plot and pull out nuggets of information uh, and run away. You know, without the cops knowing. So obviously, what you can tell from this movie, uh, it first starts on a black screen. It's black. There's no sound at all. But then, there is sound. But there's there's no visuals. What do you mean? Um, but there is sound. So the sound kind of has like a more independent use than the visuals in order to tell a story. In this case, what is it, Father? It is a circle of children, and they're playing this game. It's kind of like, I'm not quite sure what it means, but they, it's something that they invented themselves. And there's a little uh, girl, like a little blonde girl, in the middle, and she's pointing at each one of the kids one by one. And she sings this song where she, she goes, Just you wait, it won't be long. The man in black will soon be here. With his cleaver's blade so true, he'll make mincemeat out of you. I guess mincemeat is like ground then- beef. For this first shot, we get a like a pan upwards and to the left to this wide awning uh, where you have this uh, the mother uh, or like I don't know a maid or something who knows it's not v- very specific I think it's actually you know the the servant so she's she's you know kind of coming against them going why are you singing that song it's so morbid uh, it's dark I mean that's that's unnecessary but yeah this pan. That's when you realize, okay, this is unconventional because it's positioned in a way so that it pans and you can see, you know, the 3D dimensionality of it. Comparatively, you would be, you know, facing the front, usually in 1931 and such. But in this, you get three dimensionality. That's what one of the things I like about this. Yeah, movie. a lot of the a lot of the innovations of, of the more European directors, I think that that started leaking in uh, slowly into uh, kind of the American style. And the American style, it's in some ways it's kind of plain and, and very straightforward. And in other ways, they kind of are trying to stretch their creative muscles. And I think that's where you get those nice pan that just goes through the whole hall. You know, But I know, but it pitches upwards. So you can get the, the, the vertical uh, positioning of the camera looking up. It's probably a crane probably shot. Probably a crane shot, maybe. But... That's just what I like about this movie. There's, you know, vertical positioning. As we'll see in some of the next shots, there's this shot down the stairs, and there's multiple shots like this. When Fritz Lang puts something on frame and he's do- he does it real close up, it's, f- it's for a reason. When he does it, uh, you know, medium shot, it's for a reason. It's not just because it looks good. It's because he's trying to say something, too. There's some shots where he, like, maintains a distance from... Uh, you know, from the subject, and so he it would, in a way, what he's trying, kind of trying to say is, the closer we are to something, the more intimate it gets. It, the more we kind of start to feel what the person feels. But if we're distant, we're kind of like we can keep keep it at arm's length. And that's just distance. 
there's a ton more that you can dig into. It's it's all about what is he showing at a distance? What is he maintaining distance on? And what is he showing in supreme close-up? So anyway, so she's she's hauling a heavy load of laundry up the stairs, and she's delivered to this woman who we find out is Elsie Beckman's mother. And we figure out who Elsie Beckman is shortly. But she, So she's really exhausted. They both are. And, and they also are talking about this specter of this vicious predator, this this murderer that is actually murdering. It's not just a, a kid's song. It is actually a murder going on, and um, they don't know what to make of it. And you could just feel as she's walking up those stairs, and she's like, oh, boy, this is heavy. She's just, like, walking, like, trudging through because it's very heavy. And it's just like from then you realize it's a slower, more lingering kind of film. When I say it lowers your blood pressure earlier, it will. Life is hard and it's tedious. You have this thought that her mother has done this every time. This is a routine. She's always awaited her kid returning from school. Kids would get off school about lunchtime, a little before lunchtime. I was thinking they was that wasn't home from school for good. That was just coming home from lunch for lunch, and then they go back out again to school, and then they come back. So I guess because they don't have cafeterias in school at this time the the parent makes the food um yeah there are uh, parents waiting outside for their children notice that they're wearing you know fur coats and you know they have uh fur uh furs on their necks and kind of that stuff so you can see that they're kind of the the more richer uh people yes waiting for their children at the at the guyman shul so the cuckoo clock it rings 12 o'clock for lunch elsie beckman is walking home from school and she's bouncing the ball and it takes no time at all before she is finding herself in harm's way because she's absentmindedly just, she stumbles out into the busy street. And this it shows how vulnerable children are. She's barely capable of looking both ways before she steps in traffic. And, and of course, somebody does stop her. So it shows that, you know, if not for, you know, some of the adults, you know, that this could happen. So she's bouncing a ball and she bounces it on this morbid wanted poster news thing. And it reads, 10,000 marks reward who is the murderer. Little Kurt Klawitzki and his sister Clara have been missing since June 11th. Evidence leads us to believe that the children were victims of a crime similar to that committed last fall against the During siblings. And then right after you get to see a bit of this for a couple seconds, then walks in silhouetted the murderer himself. This is a, a famous shot, and I really like this shot. As well, there are a ton of great shots. Even still, the opening shot—you've got this, uh, the shot kind of uh, where she's kind of walking up. I don't know, somewhere sandwiched in there. There's a shot of it looking like down the stairs, like you can see all the way down it. It's positioned vertically, and that's something again. I said I like about this movie—the vertical positioning. You can make it face downwards. That's amazing. And of course, the shadow enters in. And it's very it's large, so uh, you know it's it's very uh, threatening. Um, it's cast on the poster. It's a man in a coat and a fedora, which, if you think about it, everyone wears that. It's almost like you know how you have a kid these, these killers in these movies back in the day, uh, back in when I was younger. They always would have like a hockey mask or a burned, scarred face, and that's not true of real monsters. They look just like us. They dress just like us, and they talk just like us. There's no difference from us because we are the we are monsters. Except for Peter Lorre's, you know, famous, you know, kind of baby 
baby looking face. It does kind of look a bit yeah, like Yeah, but that but this, see that kind of shows that he he's harmless and you know It's very I'm unique. Just, I'm childlike, you know what I'm saying? So he says what's a pretty ball you have there? What's your name? And she says Elsie Beckman. So that's where you see, okay, what's going on here? This is kind of creepy. So it's twelve twenty now and some kids start coming in the building. Mrs. Beckman asks them about Elsie and, and did Elsie come with you and she they, they say no. Now you see this shadowy man from behind. He is buying Elsie a strange balloon, and it has a cartoonish yet strange uh, look. It looks like a like a child. That even the balloon does. And he's whistling in the hall of the Mountain King from Pier Gint by Edvard Grieg. And that tune is very, it's very ominous because it builds up and up and up into the da 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 Here's the thing. Peter Laurie who plays Hans Beckert, he could not whistle. Uh, it's Fritz Lang whistling instead. Also, many times when Fritz Lang films close-up shots of a character's hands, it's his own he's yeah, filming. This would be something that Fritz Lang would often do, especially with the hands thing. I think there was a little bit of controversy with... Um, I think there was a film he made called Manhunt or something. Oh, is, that, is that the one where the assassin... He almost shoots Hitler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the beginning, and then apparently people have most theorized, and it's probably, could be, probably correct, is um, that it's Fritz Lang's hands in the in the yes, small shot is, of him is. preparing to shoot. The, the character doesn't shoot Hitler, he just kind of like gives a little mock salute like, I could have shot you. Yeah, like he could have. This shows Fritz Lang's stance on Nazism. It's a hint, yeah, it's definitely a hint. So, uh, later on, this whistle is going to be used to identify him to those who seek him. Like John Williams' uh, theme, you know, the da-da-da. Jaws. The whistle kind of replaces him. It tells us when he's going to kill and when he has been thwarted, blocked, or stymied. So It also is later used, especially in a scene where he's just trying to fight his desires to, to kill. Yeah, he's being stymied, yeah. And then he starts whistling again while he's just groping his face. He's just like, oh, I just can't. It's, you know, showing the struggle within him and whenever he's thinking about it. Even when, you know, he's just staring into a uh, store and, you know, he senses that there's a kid in the reflection all the way around the corner. With the spoons and the silver and the metal. So basically, Elsie, she she's not returning home, okay? Um, her mother, she's prepared the dinner table all for her. She's wrapped together like a napkin. But then she's, you know, she's looking out the window and she's calling for a child. And this is a very striking scene where there's just empty sp- wall of silence between every Elsie. Um, and it shows, you know, like an attic and um, like a place where they're hanging clothes. And then finally the dinner table she didn't come to. And there's just, there's weight in this. Even the opening moments, there's a ton of weight. It's it's unsettling. It really is. And if, you, you know, I... I'm, of course, a father, and anybody can look at this and kind of go, oh, and feel for them. But it's different when you're a parent watching something like this. You can you can definitely understand. But then the ball, it rolls away, and the balloon, it, like, curves uh, it curves over and flies away uh, the electric lines. or It gets stuck in power lines, right. So it's very clear that the shadowy whistling man, who we don't see his face yet, um, he was the killer and Elsie was the victim. So... Uh, Fritz Lang, he uses his movies uh, many times to explore complex social dynamics, uh, like of, of the rapidly modernizing society, things getting, you know, moving fast. Uh, whereas 
the science fiction movie Metropolis, it was trying to pose a series of what ifs about society because it's the future, of course. Uh, M acts like a piece of journalism. It's like it's a reflection of of a modern sensibility. I mean, you can we we le- we live in a, a world right now where there are cars and there are trains and there are kids going to public school and there are you know child killers. That could be now. There are criminals. There there are police officers. All those things exist now. You wouldn't have to do very much at all to update this for a modern uh, time. But but you don't have to because Fritz Lang already did that. It's 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 timeless. But Metropolis, you ha- it's almost like fairy tale, you know. But with with M, it's it's very like this could be. So um, the next scene we get uh, Hans Becker. He's writing to the newspaper, and he's trying to advertise that you know uh, I'm going to continue killing people because I'm not done yet. I've found a new victim, and everyone is just constantly scared of him because he's like, oh, Elsie's dead. What's going to be next? Uh, he's yes. even writing he, to the press to get his publication out there. This reminds me of, of many times, I've, like I said, I've looked into, into um, true crime and stuff like that, and, and I looked into a um, famous murderer called the Zodiac Killer, and he, he, he taunted uh, the newspapers. He would write ciphers and taunting letters and he wanted uh the newspaper to to post them and if they didn't you know it's like he would probably do something bad it's it's very much so it's almost like a god complex that you do this now he said but you know it's him you you have this thought that it's him because he's talking about murdering and it's and he's writing and he's whistling oh that's true so in, in the letter it says because the police have not published my first letter, I'm writing today directly to the newspapers. So he wrote, he sent something to the police, and they didn't publish it. So he's writing directly to the newspaper to have them publish it. Um, okay, so it says, continue your investigations. Everything will happen just as I have told you, but I have not yet finished. Uh, the news then says, the terror in our town has found a new victim. Certain evidence leads us to believe that the murderer is the same one who has already killed eight children. Some businesses are, uh, um, uh, some, some business people are shown and they're reading the story. I thought they were just barmen, but I didn't know that they were specifically business people. Well, they could be business people. It's fairly ambiguous because everyone is smoking here. Yes, of course. Certain evidence leads us to believe that this is the same murderer who has already claimed eight victims from among our city's children. We must emphasize once again that it is now more than ever every mother and father's sacred duty to alert their children to the ever-present danger and the friendly guys it is likely to assume. A little candy, a toy, an apple can suffice to lure a child to his or her doom. That reminds me of like back in the 80s when I was a kid, um, there was this rumor that twisted people would put razor blades in in apples, and kids would like bite into them and kind of like Snow White, uh, ex- except Saw. Yeah, <laughs> right. So it's like I lodged just I lodged a razor blade inside your neck, and you have to uh you have to reach inside of your own neck and pull it out in five minutes before you do. I haven't even watched that obviously. No, but no, the, no, the you format don't. <laughs> The format it's is torture. It's just torture stuff, you know. For it's it's 
Why do people even like that or make that? Anyway, this is this is much this is a much better movie. So yes, of course it is. So so everybody, this is where you start seeing everybody is anxious over this. It's not just something parents are you know concerned about and they're going to go about their daily lives. No, no, no. Everybody's anxious. Even the the government is like searching for every tiny little clue. In order to get to this mystery, right, and it's and this it is also heightened by the police's failure to apprehend a suspect. Anxiety among the general public is heightened by the police's failure to apprehend a suspect. But the police are faced with the almost impossible task of catching a criminal who's left not the slightest clue behind. Who is the murderer? What does he look like? Where is he hiding? No one knows him, yet he is among us. Anyone sitting next to you could be the murderer. Anybody could be sus. So these news stories have people accusing each other because it could be anybody. Even searching, they show them searching a man's house because of an anonymous letter he wrote. But of course it's not the same anonymous letter, it's something else that he wrote anonymously. And they're like, okay, we're gonna ser- we have to search your whole house. The police explain that they had to follow every clue they can. A small child asks this man on the street, just man with glasses on, whatever, what time it was. And these townsfolk confront him like he's the killer. And this is also a good use of height that would be used uh, from Eon's come. Uh, to where to show, you know, dominance in the situation. You view them, you know, where they're higher up in frame versus lower down in frame. Oh, absolutely. This is a so- pretty, pretty great shot. A uh, pretty iconic shot. You know, it's facing down to this innocent man and then facing up the guy's like, why Why do you need to know where she lives? Yeah, exactly. And and the people are, it shows the people, they're frustrated with the police because they get this guy who's a pickpocket, uh, you know, they get pickpocket, but they're like, but you're not catching the murderer yet? What are you doing? I mean, they're, they're very frustrated with the police. Uh, the police, it shows them. They're analyzing his fingerprints. They are, but, but they, but it's interesting just by his handwriting, they're completely, you know, figuring him out, supposedly, but they still haven't had any luck. And they're sending it to multiple people. This is a multi-step, complex process that they're trying to get as much, like, microscopic detail. Then the handwriting analyst, he uh, he says, The aforementioned diamond-shaped and swelling sweeps, clearly seen from the word soon, near the bottom. Got that? Yeah. Attest to the strong pathological ecstasy of this sadistic figure. Period. They still have no clue. They still have no idea. They're just, like, endlessly trying to search, you know, for this man. And it's just like, we need results, okay? We need to define this man. We need to get this over with. Right, right. And then while the handwriting analyst is breaking it down, we get this shot, uh, you know, while he's talking, to get this shot of Peter Lorre as Hans Beckert. We finally see his face, right? And he's looking in the mirror and he's stretching his face out in this strange kind of bug-eyed frown. The writing as a whole displays elusive yet unmistakable signs of madness. It reminded me of a similar scene in uh, in Todd Phillips' uh, movie, The Joker, uh, that came out a year or two ago. 
um, with the character of Arthur Fleck, uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix. He's stretching his mouth out to make it sad or happy. I'll have, to, I'll have to show you a clip of that. There are a lot of parallels between the Joker and him, except he isn't, you know, really laughing. He's, uh, he's compelled. Yes. The police are searching crime scenes. They search the forest, asylums. Uh, they, they really do come up short. It's like they're running out of ideas and dis- dissatisfaction among people in the streets. It's just going to mount. And the officers are doing all they can. They got these guys working on 12-hour shifts. Even 24-hour shifts. Yeah, they did find Evan. And I, I love how they're talking about it. And as they're talking about it, they're showing it, you know, at, over the, you know, and it's very, it's very, you know, we, we take that for granted. Oh, that's that's normal for movies. That's just normal creativity. Nobody did that a lot back then, and, and so except for guys like him, like, like uh, Fritz Lang. So uh, they do find evidence at the scene of, uh, the crime, which is a piece of candy paper that had some cr- candy crumbs on it. And this is just like a minor little thing. Even the smallest detail, they're just like searching in a radius for f- from every candy shop. And they, and they keep asking people and they go, no, no, we haven't seen anybody. So even though that is a good clue, they're just, they're, they're barking up the wrong tree. They have volumes full of clues. They're combing the forest. And this is a stupid joke, I know, but I was thinking they've got the dogs out. So I guess these are the guys that that let the dogs out no that's no okay so they inspect all the flop houses i guess homeless shelters would be another way of saying flop houses and they check every homeless person it makes a lot of people nervous they're getting all the railway stations all the underworld hangouts they haven't found anything yet they're even searching without like warrants warrants you don't need a warrant so things hit a boiling point when the police start to shake down the underworld okay so they start to sweep in the streets and they come upon this, uh, like a pub or a speakeasy. It's called the Crocodile, right? And they systematically interrogate everybody in the place. And they're trying to get their passports and their stuffs. And that's when we meet uh, Inspector uh, Carl Lohman, who's a big character in this. Or as the people lovingly call him, Tubby Lohman. Uh, yeah, or Fatty Lohman, yeah. He's there leading the investigation and unsurprisingly these people just hate the police the reason i'm thinking that some of them are criminals there is because some of the stuff they find is like guns and uh you know lots, lots of stuff that you might steal furs uh, also a, a drill a drill and equipment that looks like you might get into a safe with it so that's the hint that safe cracking might be you know, something that happens later in this movie, which it does, yeah. So the majority of them are detained after that, often on charges that are unrelated to murder. They're just like, they're just putting out a net and catching whatever they can find. So the lady who runs the place, she's not happy with those raids because they're making a mess of things. And she has this little speech that she gives at the end that hints to where the movie might be heading or the or the w- one thing that it's trying to say. She says, If you knew how steamed they are, if the guy is causing these raids, especially the girls, sure they solicit. Business is business. But believe me, in every one of them beats a mother's heart. I know a lot of crooks who get all teary-eyed just seeing the little ones at play. If they ever catch that man, they'll wring his neck. So that that tells me, okay... There are crooks, and and that might they might be criminals, but when it comes to someone harming a child, 
they 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 do have heart a heart you know and if they catch him they'll wring his neck and that hints that maybe that's what might happen so then there's a group of these uh, powerful gang members and they're meeting in uh kind of like a little apartment but it's it's right above the crocodile one of the guys is like is like looking down at the crocodile kind of and they're all commenting on it and we meet two uh, two of the characters we meet are you know kind of prominent in this criminal group mainly of uh, this guy named uh, Der Schranker. Also known as Safecracker. Yeah, yeah. And there's Franz. And there's this, he's kind of a, a burglar. He's kind of lovable, making silly mistakes. So they discuss the fact that this hunt for the killer is cutting into profits from the criminal enterprises. Everyone, even the, the, the criminals, are just all tired of this dude existing. They're like, we can't make crimes. The police are combing the streets, so we can't do any crimes. We can't you know, make any money, we can't have fun out there, you know, breaking into stuff, um, so we just gotta get rid of this dude, and we're the ones to do it. And we got the parallel, we got a parallel shot, right? We got contrasting shots. And this is one of the very masterful things that you can get from this movie, is, you know, uh, you have the, the criminals, and they're all smoking in this, you know, dingy area, in the government building, uh, even the government building, it's also full of smoking in a dingy environment where people are yelling at each other angrily and trying to just trying to make plans, frequently and vainly solve. Even you know all the things you know. You think of the government, the White House, all that stuff. You think of cleanliness, but this world is not cleanly. It is full of dessert, maybe even disease. There could be disease on these streets. There is a scuzzy kind of appearance to everything. There's been so much torment. In this city. And neither one of them are completely clean, or they're not completely morally clean on this, and we, we find that as we go. So Lohman, uh, Inspector Lohman, he, he, he suggests that they sweep all the residences of former asylum inmates uh, who may have had a history of violence against children, and any, any materials that they may have had that may have been used to write letters. Uh, and this actually is a good plan, we find later, but Schrenker, during the meeting... He suggests something crazier. He he decides that it's now become the criminal or the underworld's responsibility to catch the child murderer. the The police will never effectively end their investigation, and the profits will dry up. He says, "An outsider is ruining our business and our reputation. Measures taken by the police and the daily raids to catch child murder are hampering our activities to an almost unbearable degree." We can no longer tolerate the fact that we are not safe now in any hotel, cafe, or even private home from the clutches of the police. Very true, hear, hear. The state of affairs must end. Things must go back to normal, or we'll go under. Our reputation is suffering as well. The police seek the murderer in our fold. And then he says something very interesting, um, almost... You know, echoes some of the fascist statements of the Nazi party. He says, But we must draw a firm line between ourselves and this man they're looking for. We conduct our business in order to survive, but this monster has no right to survive. He must be killed, eliminated, exterminated, without mercy or compassion. So he declares that every street person in the city will be mobilized as a member of a sprawling surveillance unit into this kind of you know we're we're gonna use the beggars turn them into a you know beggar society you know go out uh like the pony express just try and spy about like the spies who are spying in canaan sherlock holmes did that did he not 
Um, that was with the child, the children. But he was the good guy. These guys, well, they could be seen as good. I mean, and then we come back to the crux of this movie, which is, does this Hans Becker deserve pity for all these terrible, terrible things that he has done? Fritz Lang does kind of... uh, Does he deserve pity? Well, he opens your mind to the fact that he might. He might deserve some pity. He does, and like I said, Fritz Lang does not excuse what this man does whatsoever. But he does, he does show him as a man. This is not. There may be monstrous things within him, but he's human, um, and that's something that we have to look at as these people. Is is that we we share something in common with this person? We have we you know we have a mind, we have a heart, and it may lead us in, in a dark place but we have to realize that this person's a human and so are we and and that's going and that kind of it makes it easier if you think of someone as a complete monster it's easier to just kill the beast like you said before, uh, the other day so okay so even though M came out 2 years before Hitler and the Nazi party came to real power Lang knew that a weak government and extreme public unrest can be explosive you know, what is the worst thing? Okay, a child murder on the prowl or a fearful, bloodthirsty populace? And they're just absolutely tired and sick of it. Yeah, and what's the motivation? Justice? Revenge? So we see government officials portrayed as ineffective, and that's what the reputation of the Weimar government in post-World War One was. The government is failing the people. Okay, well, we... that Honestly, that statement I just said about the government failing the people, that could be timeless. So... Fritz Lang does not make a sympathetic picture of the people uh, in this in the in the town. You kind of agree with them, yes, this murder is bad, but they they are really kind of going overboard with how uh, how how out for blood they are. All the sympathetic characters in this section of the movie they're the are the criminals. So when the police raid the pub, we don't have any hate for them. They're just living their lives, having a good time, and they're getting harassed, right? And it's actually the gang members that are actually making progress. And the police, who are supposedly were putting everything in, in the government, were, were putting everything in their hands, they're spinning their wheels. So an underworld boss has more influence than a police official. So Schranker oversees the process by which these street people, these beggars or whatever, or homeless people, they're assigned specific parts of the city. One of the first guys is uh, is an organ grinder, which is like a... It's not literal organs, but it's like this this music box that you that you turn. You know, sometimes they, uh, you know, they have a monkey dancing or something like that. I don't know. Not in this case. So it's about the same spot that the little girls were doing their song about the killer. But this time they're not dancing at all to the organ grinder. Oh, they're not. So uh, Inspector Loman, the first apartment search doesn't see anything. See, he's see it shows them spinning their wheels again. But the beggar, the beggar society, they it's working. It's working. It is working. They're starting to find them, and then, you know, we get this uh, very, very, very good scene. We we get to see this perspective of Hans Beckert, and he's looking at himself in the reflection of a storefront, and then he sees the girl, and he's like, oh, I'm about to kill her. But the thing is, this is the camera moving. This is not him. This is the camera, which is interesting. But then uh, the girl's mother then walks up into view um, from, you know, going like, oh, child, 
uh, or something off screen, and then we get her coming in. Yeah, we're we're kind of relieved because we're like, oh, thank God, she's off the you table. Know, but the thing is, though, our blood pressure may have been low earlier, but his is definitely up. But the thing is, uh, this blind uh, balloon seller, uh, we saw him earlier. And he's blind, but the thing is, he's the actual one who recognizes uh, Hans Beckert's existence when he finds this other girl. And he's uh, buying a balloon for her, too, or just passing by, and he goes, wait, it's, uh, it's, it's that dude. I recognize him. He was off with Elsie. And then he tells uh, this other man, and so he's like, oh, he's the murderer. Let, let's go get him. And so this beggar, this beggar dude who got told, uh, he puts uh, M in chalk on his hand, and he slaps uh, Hans Beckert's uh, coat, and um, that is why the movie was named, obviously, that M hand, slapped, and he's marked uh, for murder. Yes, and there's also a part where he's, Hans Beckert has a knife. He drops the knife or something, and, and the girl hands it back to him, and it looks like he's going to stab her. But he just peels an orange with it. Yeah, but the way he cuts that orange is just expertly, and he's slicing it, and you're like, that's how he slices people. Now, as they're walking, the the girl notices the M on his shoulder and tries to rub it off. But the thing is, the beggars now recognize him, and they yeah. chase him in this big, epic wide shot of him like wandering around, but he's surrounded by them, so he has to run. And from this moment, this is when you feel more pity for uh, Hans Beckert, especially as we get into his perspective. Yeah, well, you start to, and you're like, the hunter uh, previously is now the prey, and... and and we're like, yeah, we don't want a little girl to get hurt. We want him to get caught, but we're starting to feel those little twinges of maybe something's wrong with him. I don't. It's not full. It's not full on yet. That comes. That starts evolving later as we go. As you start, you know, getting a little bit more of him. So a lot of the tension in this is is those kind of silent era stuff that that Fritz Lang brought into this, where he just mutes it into like a wall of silence. Yes, it's not driven by any dialogue at all. It's uh, this these cat and mouse games with glances and men in shadows. Even when Beckert sits down in a cafe, he gets multiple drinks of alcohol because he's trying to cognac or whatever. He's trying to calm himself down, but he, he and he's trying to he's doing the whistle and he can't. He's trying to he's trying to fight the urges, but the urges come back stronger. Yeah, and and the way that also we're watching him is kind of like a voyeur because we're not. Like sitting next to him in his chair, we're like almost like we're watching him from across the street. So we kind of it's kind of like that's when we are seeing, you know, like we're we're spying on him just like the the street people were doing. Um, you know, lots of lots of shadow invasion invading each other's space. Okay, so now this is right about where the street people have really pushed him into running and he's he's got to find some place and there's this building with people that work in the building and they're letting out they're you know they're coming out they're uh they're done with work for the day and they're coming out and and Hans Beckert's trying to go in to the building and sneak in after it's shut so you know there's once there's word that got gets back to the gang that Beckert has disappeared in the office building they they put together an idea to to do a heist to get him but meanwhile inspector Loman, uh they have discovered the mahogany table which was a clue was actually a mahogany windowsill and there was red pencil and they discovered where he was in fact they also discovered an ariston an ariston cigarette didn't they also find a candy wrapper in the trash can yeah, and then from this point, there's like a famous scene where he's like, huh, Ariston? 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 
and the the camera constantly zooms up and up and up on him and then he's got it he's figured out the case the realization zoom in he's connected this to a different case and now he knows who it is the realization zoom in there is a i think my my favorite one is the one they do in jaws but I need to show you this. When you see this, you're like, yeah, I've seen that a million times. But I need to show you the realization zoom in when we get later on, we get done with this podcast because you need to see this. So now we're in this thrilling break-in scene. You know, all of the, the criminals, they're breaking in, right? They tie up the security guards. There's a guy with like a jackhammer. He's jackhammering through the top of the building in order to get in. There's a lot of verticality and placement, especially when it's positioned over it, in particular uh, when the police catch them toward the, the end of the heist. Great. The set, the the set, set is, is great. awesome. Yeah, it's and there's really like good. this big giant stairwell around, which is the main area. It's got ledges, and we have uh, Hans Becker, and he's running for his, trying to run around and hide for his life, and he's picking himself out of the office uh, with like a with like a hairpin and stuff. Oh, with his knife, even I think was he picking with his knife? Yeah, and he, he ends up in this this dark storage area, like an attic, and you see shadows. Uh, laying over him, and you can almost see the sweat on his face. I mean, he's he's outnumbered. You know, he's he's not he's not this scary monster anymore. He's just this scared guy. Now he, I'm not saying anything that he did was justified or right, but now he, you see that he's he's not this you know this threatening guy anymore. He's being threatened, especially when they hear him pick the door. He's just like, oh, now we know where he is, and they're just wrecking the place axes battering rams stuff like that and they're just like incoming toward this there's this scene i really like it where he's just sitting there and he's like breathing and there's like you can hear the noises of them breaking in there's like yeah it's it's, it's very very thrilling especially it's just getting more and more you're like yeah especially when you played hide and seek and you could hear people like walking by and opening yeah. doors and stuff that's very yeah. creepy like when you're in a dark room like that except they're gonna kill you that like, yeah <laughs> thing is they do eventually discover him and then there's lights on him and he stands up well first you know first the thing something a complication has occurred Somebody rolled rolled a a, a critical a critical fumble. So and this one criminal dude, he was so he he did not have any uh, smarts in his brain really because he thought the plan was to go to a security guard and go, hey, uh, sound the alarm basically or something like that to to alert him that there are things going on. Yeah, and and of course it's oh man, it's Franz. The only other uh, guy that they really you know mention in in this. The heist team, you know, other than DeShrunker. Um, and so he goes down through this hole that he was supposed to, to open, and everybody's gone. Uh, and so by the time the police get there, they just take Franz in. So, and the interesting thing is, we get these reverse, uh, reversing, uh, contrasting issues. So, Shrunker was a criminal. Now he's in a police uniform, so now... You know, before, he was the person you're empathizing with in order to catch Hans Beckert, but by this time, you've already switched to Hans Beckert's role, and you empathize with him, and you're in his role and his shoes, and you realize, oh, they're actually the bad guys here. Who's, everyone's a bad guy here. Everyone's against each other. So who do, who do we sympathize with? Uh, who gets the celebration at the end uh, from us? Which team are you on? If a uh, red team wins... Uh, are you on green team, red team, uh, yellow team, or blue team, or purple team? Who knows? Are you on t- team DeShrunker or are you team Beckert? So 
the architecture to me was very trapping and claustrophobic. So like you said, when he was in the storage area, I felt like I was trapped uh, too. Um, you know, you know, are we going to sympathize with a child murderer though? I don't think so. So we're not supposed to like or forgive him just because he's portrayed like a caged animal. But through his fear, we get, like I said before, we get to see him as a person, a human. So this is interesting. Fritz Lang seems like he's telling us that no person is ever thought of as less than a person. So when you say someone's a monster or beast, then just tell them a person's a person, no matter how small, no matter how small. Yeah, there we go. So back at the police station, the, the, uh, uh, what a dummy. Yeah. I'm not saying a dummy. He's just, he just kind of got the worst look ever. Inspector Lohman is interrogating Franz to find out why he was there at the break-in. Uh, nothing was stolen, right? So they're like, well, this was a failed break-in then. But Lohman kind of knows Franz a little bit. So he knows if there's anything that Franz doesn't like, it's, it's, it's somebody dying when they don't have to. But he eventually gets the information out of uh, Franz through this, you know. He lies, though. He lies. He says that one of the security guards was shot and killed. And he's like, no, uh, we, were just, we were just trying to, you know, to, to trap the child murderer. And, and Lo- this is, okay, Lohman at first, you know, he was just like, I'm just trying to stop a heist. Wait a minute, what? So, miracle of miracles, he actually, because Franz uh, panicked and said that, um, he actually helped him crack the case. So, it still shows that the police officials and the government officials are hapless. They just they just tripped into the solution. Okay, so here, here's the end sequence, and it's a doozy, okay? It is very masterfully good. And we are going to definitely... Have a clip for this, but... We're going to have the clips for these. So the gang has brought Hans Becker to the cellar of an abandoned distillery. And this is not where they are going to hold him up, you know, like just tie him, chain him up. No, 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 no. This is where they're going to try him in a mock trial or like a mob law Yeah, he's been running out of this place and he opens up the door. But then he just comes against this huge amount of people all just staring at him. And in the middle is the safe cracker to Shranker, and he's just like crossed his arms, and they're all just staring at him. And, and there he's are just mothers, like, there are fathers, there are regular people from the town. This is not just oh, it's a bunch of criminals. No, this is everyone who was affected by him. Everyone who was affected by him being at that town or even existing. And they are. They even, strangely enough, they even have him a court-assigned defense attorney. And, uh, and this guy, actually, he's the only thing standing in the way. He's like, you know, I'm the one that's supposed to be protecting you. vengeance, right. So it's clear that Schranker has no interest in conducting a fair trial. The defense attorney, like, realizes that, and he, go, and he demands that Becker get turned over to the police so he can face a fair trial. But everyone's just laughing at his defendant. Yeah, that's everybody, he says, that's everybody's right. Like, like that's a basic right that everybody in America has, according to the Constitution, of you spoke of right just now. We will be your right. Everyone sitting here is an expert in the rule of law. From six weeks in Tegel to 15 years in Brandenburg. They'll make sure you get your rights. So, Schranker and the jury argue that Becker gave up his right to a fair trial when he started murdering children. Um, everybody gets a fair trial even if you do murder children. That's 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 kind of a basic thing. But uh, the thing is... This uh, is a kangaroo court. There is no fair here. There is 
this dude, we are not going to have any pity for him. This guy got So they're, they're go. thinking if we just deem him insane, then they'll send him to a mental institution. And then he'll come back, and then he'll repeat it all over again. You know, the boy cried wolf kind of situation. You know, if he cries wolf and he gets, you know, told off to be like, oh, we'll, we'll forgive you, release you out uh, back into the fields. This time they're at the last cry of wolf. Or there won't even be a first time is what their thing is. Beckert does not, he does not say that he doesn't have a, an unsound mind. He definitely, he doesn't say, oh, I'm not insane. He kind of proves that something is going on in his mind. Um, he should not, he's, he's basically should not be tried as a sane man. He goes, he goes through this gut-wrenching monologue about these two men inside of him. And we will play this in full here. You must be taken out of action. You must go. But I can't help it. I can't help it. I can't. I really just can't help it. We all know that one. For the judge, we all can't help it. What would you know? What are you talking about? Who are you anyway? Who are you? All of you. Criminals. Probably proud of it too. Probably can crack a safe or sneak into houses or cheat at cards. All of which seems to me just as easily give up. If you've learned something useful, if you had jobs, or if you weren't just some lazy pigs. But me? Can I do anything about it? Don't I have this cursed thing inside of me? This fire, this voice, this agony. What do you mean to say? You have to kill? I have to roam the streets endlessly, always sensing that someone is following me. It's me! I'm shadowing myself. Silently. But I still hear it. Yes. Sometimes I feel like I'm tracking myself down. I want to run. Run away from myself. But I can't. I can't escape from myself. I must take the path that it's driving me down. And run. And run down endless streets. I want off. I want off. And with me run the ghosts of the mothers and the children. They never go away. They're always there. Always. Always. Except when I'm doing it. When I... Oh, but then I don't remember a thing. Then I'm standing before a poster, reading what I've done, and read, I read. I did that? I don't remember a thing. But who will believe me? Who knows what it's like inside of me? How it screams and cries out inside of me when I have to do it. Don't want to. 
Must. Don't want to. Must. And then, then a voice cries out. So I can't listen anymore. Help. I can't. I can't. I can't. The crux of Beckert's self-defense is that he he deserves pity because he can't control his actions, unlike the people in the jury who who chose the criminal lifestyle over the law-abiding one. So he's kind of like starting to bring them into it and go, okay, yeah, but you. And he's pointing it back at them a little bit. Well, they are having none of it. And they're saying, okay, we're just going to sentence you to death. So then Schranker says something that sounds very much like the Nazis, like the fascist world that Fritz Lang is trying to call to attention. He says, The accused has stated that he can't help himself. In other words, he must commit murder. With that, he's pronounced his own death sentence. Yes, correct, yes. A man who claims that he's compelled to destroy the lives of others such a man must be extinguished like a bonfire. Such a man must be obliterated, wiped out. And they all just start pouncing on him. But in this penultimate scene, they just stop. You don't know why at first, but they just stop right after running. And then they slowly put their hands up. You don't even see the police. You're not even supposed to see the police. If they're, if there's some weird version, they show the police, but... Uh, I think the English dub actually shows the police somehow. I don't know. I haven't I know seen would, a clean copy it? of the English dub, obviously. Well, don't. The, English, the English dub kind of treat. I hate to say this, but many times the English dub uh, takes the intelligence uh, uh, of the actual film uh, that it's trying to create some kind of uh, copy of, or it, it kind of dumbs it down and goes, well, you won't understand that the police are here, so we'll just, we'll just show them for you. But that's the whole point of this. You just see them raising their hands because you know they're there and that's just why it's so masterful i i, li- I like that and you know many times seeing the original uh and not the copy there's sometimes though there that there have been remakes and copies that are actually honestly that are better than the original and i i don't know i'd have to we'd have to maybe that's a blog post for another time about originals remakes that are better than the originals and better done but nothing is better than this very final scene you get, um, they're in the trial course, and it says, today, we are here at this trial. But he doesn't continue. At least he's not supposed to. Maybe they continue this in the English version. We can never know. But I don't think so. I don't care. It stops right there. And then we get the three women. They're just sobbing in the middle. Uh, she's one of going, them is, is uh, Mrs. Beckman. Yeah, Mrs. Like, Beckman. It, it, she's like, you must know. You must take care of the children. All of you. And that's how it just ends. It literally just ends like that. It just ends? It really just ends. Okay. There's no credits. There's not even any credits. And just... You don't even see the court trial. There's there's no, no conclusion. No. All you get is take care of your children. The conclusion is discussion. It's an open ending as compared to a closed ending, which would be like 98% of all of it, which is something I really like. Uh, about this movie. Another thing is just the the world building. I say world because this honestly feels like an encapsulated ecosystem. It's like a completely different world than our own. But eh, to each their own. It, no, no, it is. It, it it may seem that way, but it is our own world. Everything that's in this movie, are, are I can find parallels in in our world, except for the fact that 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 Fritz Lang is trying. It looks like he's trying to make an allegory for 
Weimar Germany of uh, post World War One. So and from then you can just see, especially in this movie, the the bleakness. It's oppressive. It's bleak. You know the shadows, the thick smoking everywhere. Everybody's smoking uh, here. Uh, it's kind of you know uh, it's kind of like the style of noir, but instead of you know the snappy confidence and the the jazz music, um, this film lingers on underlying doubt and dread. I you know, you would actually be surprised in actual in actual film noir there it's it's not as snappy uh it's not as jazzy as you might think but do you get a vacuum of hopelessness as in is this movie when you have a society when you have in a society when you have a society where faith in the law has collapsed um then there's a power vacuum okay so and then and then so you get instead of a justice you get a taste for blood um and that's and the you know you see where the law is breaking down and you see why the criminals were, com- you know, compelled to take these matters into their own hands, and the cops couldn't even recognize a good lead when it fell into their laps, and they came, they they stumbled into it. So it shows that you know a breakdown of of government. And then, especially if you get the the information that um, uh, uh Peter Lorre, uh, for this final scene. Uh, there's like a small little bit of it where he's being chucked down the st- well, he falls down the stairs, but uh, Fritz Lang is actually chucking down him down the stairs, probably like at least a hundred times, and he's just to the point that he's just screaming, "Please stop!" Uh, so that he gets this raw performance because that's honestly what he's supposed to be feeling is, "Please stop." I I'm I'm of a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm of two different minds on that. I think that a lot some directors, like I mentioned in the production part, mentioned uh, you know about the movie The Shining. I think uh, you know, uh, or, or or some different films like that. I, I talked about Akira Kurosawa um, would shoot real arrows at people uh, you know during certain scenes. I mean, it's it in a way. I, I don't agree, I don't agree with the methods, but I but, don't really well, think Peter Lorre really worked with Fritz Lang ever again. But you just the power and the desperation against this crowd of people. I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if uh, Peter Lorre has ever been as good. I've seen him in other things, and he's good. No, no, he's good. You know, I, I've seen him in uh, the Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, I've seen him in uh, 39, the 39 Steps and some other movies, and we're going to see him on this podcast in The Invisible Agent. And, and he does he does well, but, yeah, and also Maltese Falcon, yeah. But he's, this is his, this is, I haven't seen him do anything as raw and as gut-wrenching a performance as this. The other ones are more subtle. They're good, they're good. But this is this is like you know this is just real and like I said you know it, it comes from the gut you know he's just he's really coming you know just it's just you have to see it to you know to understand and to close this episode off what is your favorite scene from a cinematography standpoint oh wow um uh, obviously other well, than the, the scene, final the, scene the final scene sticks with me a lot but I think the scenes that stick with me um are them when they move through the streets uh going after him and when and also and when he's you know uh going after uh Beckert and when they chase him into the into the building and the, and and the interplay of shadows but um a scene that i note though is the the deli scene you know they're in this deli but the thing is the camera is like Using this oh, long, the long shot. zoom in, yeah, and it's and like the, focusing on all the tables that what people are doing, you know, playing poker, maybe eating it's sausages through them, 
And it's yeah. like going, it's acting like it's a real character in this observing. And honestly, but it's going through the table. They and, went, and, you know, we were talking about Jekyll and Hyde. They're like, okay, Unchained Camera, what can we do with this? And they did some things with it, but this movie did a ton more things with it. That's why we why we say this is one of the best films of all time, best film of Germany, as compared to Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde's great, but um, nothing really does. Compare. Yeah, I well, yeah, that I I would agree, but but Jekyll and Hyde, I think, has uh, elements in it that I would say are very influential. There's there's different elements. Uh, I have a hard time picking out what is you know uh, now great film. Yes, I would never say that something is greatest of all time, but I'd say if there was a movie that that I couldn't see any flaws in, I mean it. It's not even overly long. It just it, fe- it everything in it is built to say what Fritz Lang wants to say, and I don't see any flaws in it. It ha- it does what he wants it to do and says what he wants it to say, in 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 expert ways. This would be Fritz Lang's masterpiece. I would say th- if we ha- if we found a copy of Metropolis that was absolutely restored and had like 4K from top to bottom in every frame, um, we might see some, you know, some that 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 that's a master class in terms of di- for different reasons. But but this movie here, we have excellent copies of it. And, you know, we, we know exactly what what he was trying to show in every frame because we can see it in, in quality. And I'd have to say, yeah, I mean, I mean, but I, I have a hard time saying if something is the greatest film of all time or, or putting in things as a top 10 in any kind of order. Um, you know, like like another movie that we're going to be talking about soon is, is Citizen Kane. And I believe that if you if you look at a movie that's expertly done from top to bottom and and as you watch it further you see more things in it especially the skill of cinematography uh placement of the camera you know what they focus on um that's what makes these films really great i think is 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 what they capture with the with their cameras uh but i also think that that m is one of the great is one of the greats if you were to say a great film I would say M would be definitely, and it's worth seeing. It's worth uh, finding a copy of it. Uh, I'm sure you can find a copy of it if you try. Um, and like uh, William said before, you know, do not see the dubbed version. Don't see any remakes. See the original that Fritz Lang wanted. See it in 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 German with subtitles, uh, and and just absorb it. Um, see see if you see what you know what Fritz Lang is trying to show you. Um, and and what he puts in front of the camera is very important. What he, he how he wants you to see things. And I guess we could leave it on that. Yeah. So um, again, yeah. join us next time for Citizen Kane, and we will be off. Don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at CinematicFanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cinefanpodcast. 
ending transmission now.